It's Monday, May the 3rd, 2021. More than 1.1 billion vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Char, the Economist Science Correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the Health Policy Editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccination story as it happens. Today, we'll look at so-called vaccine diplomacy, how jabs are being used as tools for global influence. Natasha, hello. How are you today? I'm really well, thank you very much. I've been watching with great interest, actually, the Sputnik vaccine this week, which was uh, rejected by the Brazilian regulator, um, something I'm sure we will talk about a great deal this week. We will definitely talk about that specific thing later in the episode. Um, back on this show is Ed Carr, Deputy Editor at The Economist. Ed, hello, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, Alok. Just had a week's holiday, which was very nice. Very, very nice indeed. Uh, well, let, let's go straight back into work then. Uh, and let's get you to define what we're talking about when we mean vaccine diplomacy. I mean, what is the central thing that you think listeners should know about vaccine diplomacy? So I think in its broadest terms, you know, diplomacy is anything that affects a country's standing in the world. But during the pandemic, vaccine diplomacy has come to apply particularly to Russia and China and the way in which they've used the supply of vaccines to further other aims. And of course, that's easier for them in a sense, because whereas in the West, you're dealing with private companies that have private contracts, um, in, in, in Russia and China, you're dealing with either state-owned or very heavily state-influenced companies. And so contracts they make have this sort of overlay of diplomacy kind of built into them. Natasha, do you agree? Yeah, I, I would say China, Russia and India have all been using vaccine sales and donations to gain kind of political and economic advantage and connections. And it all comes at a time, doesn't it, when the United States and the West have been notably absent with regards to helping the rest of the world obtain a vaccine. Well, that's a good frame for the rest of the discussions we're going to have. As the vaccine rollout has ramped up, some countries have prioritised their own populations, while others, such as China and Russia, have grabbed headlines for sending millions of doses of their homegrown jabs abroad. Dozens of countries are looking to China to rescue them from the COVID-19 pandemic. Shipments of Chinese vaccines arriving in Egypt. The Russian Sputnik vaccines are the first batch to arrive. Sharing may bring opportunity. Since the Cold War, vaccines have been used as instruments of soft power. The past few months have been no exception. My name is Agathe Demahen. I'm the Global Forecasting Director at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Agat has recently written a report on vaccine diplomacy. What we're seeing at the moment is that a number of countries, and chief among them China and Russia, have been sending millions of doses of coronavirus vaccines to developing states as a bargaining tool, as a diplomatic tool. And when we take a look at what's happening, well, we can see that through this vaccine diplomacy operation, Russia and China are trying to bolster their bilateral relations, especially with the many emerging countries where Western influence is declining. And to another extent, China is also trying to restore its global reputation which took a hit 
in the early stages of the pandemic. And so it's all about this bolstering of the reputation. And then in the long term, Russia and China are hoping that they will be able to get some favors in return from the recipient countries, say, for instance, being more open to having Chinese-made 5G equipment being installed or doing some friendly votes at the UN or being more open to some investment. Actually, it's something that we've seen in Bolivia, for instance, just after we've seen some deliveries of Russian-made vaccines. Well, what happened in Bolivia is that they got a phone call and Russia was very interested to discuss, well, negotiating access to rare earth mines or nuclear power plant projects. Are there any other interesting examples that you can point to that relate vaccines to um, political favours? Russia and China are betting and focusing their efforts on three main regions. The first region is actually Eastern Europe and especially the Balkans, where the EU, Russia, China, and to a lesser extent, the US are competing for influence. And it's also supposedly the backyard of the EU. The second region is Latin America. Both Russia and China are really focusing their efforts on Mexico and Brazil. And the reason for that is that China is so far less present in Latin America than it is in other regions across the world. And it's also telling the US, well, hi, we're coming to your backyard. And it's a bit of the same for Russia in Latin America. It's a region where, apart from Venezuela and Cuba, Russia is not really present in Latin America. And the third region is Asia. And in Asia, what China especially is trying to do is to court favors from neighbors for investments. Are these vaccines being sold to the countries involved or are they being donated? Can you paint a picture of the transactions being involved? In most cases, the vaccines are sold, but in some rare occurrences, they can be given. But in this case, it's only a few thousand vaccines, which actually makes it a PR operation. You know, you would get this press release and we would see Russia or China donates X thousand vaccines to country X, Y or Z. And so in general, the vaccines are sold. And actually, then we see two different strategies between Russia and China. In Russia's case, it's all about the Sputnik V vaccine, which was actually the first to be registered across the world. It was registered in August 2020, and it's done by a state-owned company. So it's not really a commercial deal. You know, you could see these vaccine diplomacy deals as diplomatic deals, exactly pretty much a deal between a government and another, which is very different from the framework that we would have for the other vaccines like Pfizer, for instance. It would be a deal between a company, Pfizer, and a sovereign state. In China's case, it's a bit different because we see that there are different Chinese-made vaccines. And this vaccine can be made by state-owned companies or they can be made by private firms, in which case, actually, the SOEs and the private firms are competing for experts and for markets. And it's really a commercial opportunity for these firms. You talked about how Russia and China have a few goals when it comes to using vaccines as part of their diplomatic efforts, reputation management, but also future diplomatic favours. Do you think they'll succeed in getting those things, uh, given the deals they're doing with their vaccines? Well, essentially, their strategy doesn't come without risks, because, for instance, if we take a look at Russia, Russia was the first country to authorize a vaccine, but the country's vaccination campaign has had a very slow start so far because of production-related constraints and, to a lesser extent, to high vaccine hesitancy. So Russia will really struggle to vaccinate its own population and meet these export targets. It's a bit of the same picture, albeit to a lesser extent for China, which has more production capacity. Another risk is that 
Well, Russia and China will overpromise and underdeliver, for instance, because of these production constraints, or also because there are concerns, especially for Chinese vaccines, about the low efficacy of some of the Chinese-made vaccines. We've seen some recent data from Brazil suggesting that the Sinovac shot may be only around 50% effective, which is just marginally above the WHO set threshold. And then the third risk is that these deals can be made for commercial purposes. So China and Russia with vaccine diplomacy are trying to present themselves as the saviors of emerging countries, providing affordable vaccines to countries that would otherwise struggle to vaccinate their populations. But if these vaccines are not that cheap, if it's made for commercial purposes, well, then the strategy could fail. But at the end of the day, what Russia and China are trying to do is really to bolster their standing and win the PR, the public relations battle. And I would say from this perspective, they have won because they're actually doing a lot in emerging countries at a time when there's a lot of resentment in these countries against Western countries that are seen as hoarding vaccines and controlling the global supply and vaccinating their own populations first. Natasha, what are the benefits of vaccine diplomacy for the, the countries getting the vaccines? Well, the obvious answer, of course, is that you get life-saving vaccines, and that's a huge factor. And if there's a crisis of COVID cases in a country with many people dying, governments need to show that they can get vaccine, even though the reality is that it's going to take months to have an impact on death rates. And we saw that in the EU when political pressure was rising on uh, you know, the amount of vaccine it had. And we're seeing that now in India as well, which has stopped exporting vaccine because it has a lot of cases. But there are some other elements to this I think we should probably acknowledge. There's lots of countries in which COVID is not really having a huge impact in, and yet they're still very keen to get access to vaccine. And that's where politics really plays a role because governments and leaders often need to show that they can get access to vaccine and they can make deals. And so that's where you're seeing some of the sort of interesting things happening. And Ed, how much global influence is there really to be gained from sharing vaccines? I think it's quite a difficult one to assess and pull off for a number of reasons. One is one that Agat mentioned, that there's actually quite a lot of risk associated with some of these contracts. You know, there are promises being made and promises come cheap, but they can be hard to fulfil. A second is that the rest of the world is really putting its efforts through COVAX, which is the, an alliance that brings together money and supplies and distributes it um, around the world. Um, COVAX wants to supply 2 billion doses by the end of this year. And if it gets anywhere near that, that will start to become a, a really important factor, I think. And that, and that leads to my third point, I guess, which is that this is a long game. At the moment, as Natasha said, Western countries are hoarding vaccine. That should stop. I think it will stop. And there'll be large supplies then coming through you know, later on in this year and in next year. Agat mentioned, actually, in her, that there is some sort of PR element to this as well. That a lot of the countries getting vaccines from Russia and China perhaps feel a little bit abandoned by the West who've been hoarding vaccines. Is that, is that a, a fair summation of things, Natasha? Well, I just wanted to add a little bit to what Ed was saying and on the risks. And I think as the year goes on, I am more optimistic for China in this than I am Russia. I think Russians are going to fail to produce the doses they need. I think it's 
credibility for this vaccine is in tatters now for various reasons. And it's going to be, as supply ramps up globally, it's going to be the last vaccine that really anyone wants. And so the Russians are either going to have to lower their price or give it away. Um, the Chinese vaccines potentially could gain credibility. They could get the thumbs up from the WHO and then could end up getting distributed through COVAX. So I do think we're sort of at a fork in the road for when we talk about Russian and Chinese vaccine diplomacy. It could be that in a couple of months, things look very different indeed. Yeah, one interesting test for me is is sort of how cynical all this is. You know, on the one hand, some leaders in countries want to be able to announce by press release that they're getting a supply of vaccine because that gets the pressure off them and they don't really care if you know huge numbers don't turn up. But on the other level, people aren't stupid. You know, they know when they're being taken for a ride by Russia and that can come actually to be really quite bad for Russia's global reputation. Now, President Joe Biden has said that America is going to send tens of millions of doses abroad uh, very soon. Uh, what, what should we make of that? Is this the beginning of the West reversing its hoarding uh, principles? So when talking about the West, I think it's important to remember that Europe makes a lot of vaccines um, and it's been exporting vaccines and the equipment to make vaccines. And we talk about America and what it might do because it hasn't been doing those things and we generally expect it to play a sort of leadership role in international affairs like this. And the good news is there's a big shift in stance. President Biden has said that US will become an arsenal for vaccination for the rest of the world and that's great. And the US is definitely under pressure on the restrictions it's imposed on the movement of vaccines, the vaccines that it has and it hasn't been using and also the supplies uh, and equipment that's used to make vaccines. We've heard that Pfizer is going to be allowed to export to Canada. The US has also made um, some equipment available to the Indians in order to uh, keep vaccine making going there. And, you know, in terms of diplomacy and vaccine diplomacy and what they might donate, America's got three options from where I'm sitting. It can donate directly to countries. And that's where, you know, you get the most gain potentially because you can pick who you want to um, give vaccine to or sell it to, depending on how you do it. It could also do a sort of humanitarian donation, okay? So India's got a crisis right now. It could get a lot of brownie points by donating vaccine to India. But what a lot of countries would like to see happen is for America to donate through COVAX. It's a sort of global vaccine sharing initiative. And COVAX gets to decide where these things go, which countries are in, in greatest need. And, and that would undoubtedly be the fairest thing to do. But of course, if America does um, give vaccine through COVAX, it's going to lose its leverage, if you like. If I had to guess what it will do ultimately, I'm sure it will choose a mix of all of these three options. Ed? Well, yeah, COVAX is really interesting. I mean, so China has said that it will supply COVAX with, I think, 10 million doses. But just to put that into context, COVAX wants to supply... 2 billion doses by the end of the year. So, uh, I mean, it, it really goes to part of these definitional questions about what diplomacy is. And at one level, if we if we really, you know, what we're really focusing on here is diplomacy, which is giving away vaccines for an ulterior motive rather than just um, for kind of humanitarian reasons. Well, that is a double-edged sword because it can look exploitative. Thank you, Natasha and Ed. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, take out a subscription. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejampod. 
A story that caught my eye this week is in the science and technology section where we focus on long COVID. This is the name given to a whole series of symptoms that some people have many months after first being infected with COVID-19. As the pandemic starts to end in some parts of the world, long COVID seems to be something that will be continuing for some time more. To read that, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash thejabpod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. China and Russia have gathered the most attention for their vaccine diplomacy. But where exactly have they been sending their jabs? Our senior data journalist, Sondre Solstad, has been digging into the data. So far, we believe about 150 million doses of the Sinovac vaccine has been exported to some 25 countries. The largest shipments that we know of, at least, have gone to Indonesia, Brazil and Turkey. For the Russian vaccines, the Sputnik V vaccine is in 28 countries uh, that we know of, but the shipments are much smaller. We've only been able to confirm delivery of about 30 million doses so far. Of these, 5 million were sent to Argentina and another 2 million to the United Arab Emirates. Are there vaccines being exported as well? From China, 5 million doses of CanSino have been shipped to Mexico and Pakistan. And 53 countries have received about 26 million doses of the Sinopharm vaccine from China. Meanwhile, Syria Iran and Venezuela are in talks to import the Epivac Corona vaccine uh, made by Russia's Vector Institute. All that said, we probably don't have the full picture. Uh, There's no requirement to report these vaccine shipments to any central authority that we can ask questions of. Uh, So we have to keep track of them on a deal-by-deal basis. With all these vaccines and over 150 countries looking to get them, uh, that is not easy. And what can you tell us about donations specifically? I mean, some of the deals you've been talking about will be commercial deals, but some will be donations. How can we separate them? The numbers so far are just all deals that we know of. If we look at just the donations, uh, the picture looks actually quite a bit different. Russia has donated only about 150,000 doses so far, going to just three countries, Vietnam, Moldova and the Palestinian territories. It has promised half a million doses more to these countries than Nicaragua, Belarus, Zimbabwe, and Kyrgyzstan, um, but that still comes in at under 1 million doses. That's much smaller than what China has donated, about 13 million doses so far to 45 countries, uh, with the largest shipments going to Pakistan, Laos, and Cambodia. Are there any other countries donating vaccines? India has been a large player, 10.5 million doses, most of them going to Bangladesh, Myanmar, Nepal, and Bhutan. And of course, most countries participate by donating through COVAX, the international initiative. About 48 million doses have been sent through this initiative so far, going to over 140 different countries. And there are many, many more on the way. Ed, can I start with you? How are China and Russia choosing which countries to donate to? Well, I think this is a political choice. Sometimes it's for advantage. So, for instance, Russia um, has spoken to Guinea because uh, it happens to be a supplier of bauxite, which is useful to it. Um, There's suggestions that Laos and Cambodia have been picked by China as a reward for their general diplomatic support in, say, the South China Sea. So there's, 
there's a bit of that going on. There's a bit of a sense of opportunism. Russia and China are both interested in in the Balkans, as Agat said, because it's partly a way of getting influence in Europe. Russia's enjoyed talking to countries in Eastern Europe and of uh, talking about supplying Sputnik even to uh, France and, and Germany, though we'll see whether that really goes ahead. But as part of its general approach to try and sort of loosen the ties that hold the European Union together, and it, it sort of casts doubt on the uh, functioning of the European medicines regulator as well. So just to sort of generally pick at the European Union, which is a an inconvenient presence to its West. So there are these kind of calculations. But I, I think we can also be in danger of seeing everything as being part of a sinister plot. You know, countries also generally sometimes see the pandemic as a terrible thing and want to do something about it. And I, I think one can be overly cynical. I mean, there's an economic element as well to the way that China has behaved. If you look at the fact that it's given vaccines or sold vaccines to Belt and Road countries, you can see that as a sort of sinister plot about influence, or you can see that as economic good sense. I mean, the Belt and Road countries are countries that China has invested in, and the sooner and faster that they can recover, the better um, those countries will do economically, and, and thus so will China. So, you know, it could just be economic good sense as well as uh, politics. So whether or not you see something as sinister depends on your point of view of the country doing the donating, basically, as, as with all politics. I would say that this is where the, the contrast with COVAX is so informative. I mean, COVAX takes the politics out of this and it sets out to take the politics out of it so that countries donate to COVAX, COVAX goes and buys vaccine and then supplies it according to a sense of, of sort of need. Well, by taking the bilateral um, element out of this, it depoliticizes the pandemic response. And I, I think that's a better way of going about things. And I also think that if you look at the donations to COVAX, financial donations I'm talking about here, you know, the US has pledged 4 billion, Germany over a billion, the UK something like over $700 million. These are substantial contributions that will help the pandemic in the long run. And you know, one needs to sort of put that against all of the figures that Sondre was talking about. Nizasha, we mentioned the donations potentially being made by America in the coming months. Are there other places we should be looking out for? Yes. Well, in fact, actually, France has started to donate small numbers of doses to COVAX this April. It's going to donate, I think, a total of 500,000 um, over some time period, uh, but it's just started. Norway has said that it will donate through COVAX. And Spain has said it wants to donate a portion of its doses to Latin American countries. Um, so that we're starting to see some shifts in the attitudes of countries to sharing vaccine. Norway hasn't actually done it. It said it will. But, you know, we, we kind of really need big countries with you know, expected surpluses to do more. I'm particularly sort of depressed and disappointed that Britain hasn't been a bit more vocal on this. Okay, Natasha, Ed, thank you both very much. In December 2020, a chartered plane touched down in Buenos Aires. On board, the first 300,000 shots of the Sputnik V vaccine. 
Since then, Argentina has received more than 5 million doses from Russia and has bought around 17 million more. But a vaccination campaign that began early has not gone entirely to plan. Now, someone who's been watching it happen is our Argentina correspondent, David Smith. Natasha, you spoke to him. Yes, I did. Argentina has always fascinated me. They were first to receive doses of Sputnik and it was received with some suspicion at the time, but they did the rollout. And I was talking to David because I wanted to find out how things had moved in the five months uh, since we last looked at this. It was back at the end of the year, Natasha. Argentina really put its foot to the pedal, had vaccine in Buenos Aires between Christmas and New Year with a lot of celebration. The government of President Alberto Fernandez was saying the goal is to lead Latin America with vaccine. And that meant not just bringing down Sputnik from Moscow on specially commissioned planes amid some fanfare, but it also meant informing other countries in Latin America of what Argentina had done as perhaps to be an unofficial agent, as it were, for the Russians and for their Sputnik vaccine. But that was then, and this is now. And how has the vaccination programme gone now? Oh, poorly. Slow, scandal-plagued as well. We're looking at numbers right now that Argentina fully dosed vaccine, 2% of the population. You look next door at Chile, for example, 30 plus percent fully vaccinated, two doses. Even Uruguay, 14%. And, you know, I mentioned the word scandal. Early on, it became apparent that there was a VIP list of those who supported the government, in the trade unions especially. And then the vaccination of 20-something students who belong to the youth movement, loyal to the ruling Peronist Party, and particularly to the vice president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, former president. She was president between 2007 and 2015. And she's had a great role in this move to use the Russian vaccine, but also to distribute it to those who are loyal to this government. And the result has been on one level that the city of Buenos Aires, for example, just a short time ago was saying it had no vaccine whatsoever. The city of Buenos Aires is run by the opposition. So this is looking much more of a political campaign than a public health campaign. Why did Argentina choose Sputnik V then? The relationship between Russia and Argentina goes back many, many years. But in the period of the now vice president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, when she was president, she really worked overtime at the relationship with the Russians, very much politically from her perspective, to have a counterweight to the influence of the United States in Latin America. She, as president, supported Putin's annexation of Crimea in 2014. And then in 2015, Putin paid a state visit to Buenos Aires and it became a relationship that looked more and more like Russian expansion in Latin America. Oil and gas development projects, hydropower, nuclear power. Last year, when the pandemic took hold, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner opened up a channel direct to Putin and hence we have the dependency now on the Russian vaccine and it should be added a proposal that by June this year, an Argentine pharmaceutical company will be producing Sputnik locally in Argentina and aiming and promising 
to produce millions of doses a month. Do you think Russia is gaining influence in Argentina thanks to the vaccine availability? That is debatable. The way the vaccine programme has gone, it has divided the country. And the government and Putin, if they were hoping that vaccine diplomacy was going to um, make friends and influence people, surely not. The latest poll numbers suggest that the government's approval rating, which was in the 80% um, at the beginning of this pandemic, is now in the 30s, should be added that the president himself, Alberto Fernandez, was inoculated very publicly in January and again in February with the second dose. And on his 62nd birthday, at the beginning of April, he tested positive for COVID. So even the efficacy of Sputnik has in the public mind become an open question. I mean, was Sputnik better than having nothing at all or did Argentina have some options? No, Argentina definitely had and still has options. In these days, we're seeing the arrival of a million doses from China, Sinopharm. And AstraZeneca is here courtesy of the COVAX alliance. And at the time they were negotiating the Russian vaccine at the end of last year, they were also talking to Pfizer and had arranged to purchase Pfizer at one point, but they paused the negotiation clearly because of the politics of what was going on with the Russian vaccine. And ironically, the president of Uruguay heard about this, rang Pfizer and said, if they are not buying, I will buy immediately. And now Uruguay is using the Pfizer vaccine that would have otherwise gone to Argentina, but clearly was affected by the political game that was going on at the same time. Natasha, it seems as though the Argentine vaccination program is in a bit of a mess and that the Russian vaccine is not helping things in terms of the confidence that the citizens have with their government. And of course, the Sputnik vaccine itself has had some other troubles in Latin America. The Brazilian regulator has rejected the Sputnik vaccine. Why is that? So the Brazilian regulator said that every single lot of one of the two shots used in this vaccine uh, appeared to have something called a replication-competent adenovirus in it. And so this is the vector. The adenovirus is a cold virus, essentially, that's been inactivated, and it carries the information for the uh, the vaccine to work. So tell, tell us what that is. Well, yes. So the point about a vector vaccine is that you, you've got your virus and you package into it um, the information you want to send into the body, which is the spike protein of the COVID virus. And the point about the vector is that it's supposed to not replicate. In fact, you're supposed to deactivate it. And, you know, the problem that the Brazilian regulator has identified is that the vaccine that has been supplied is actually still replicating. And that potentially is hugely problematic, not least it points to very sloppy manufacturing. And it's problematic because it means that essentially by getting uh, the vaccine, you might get a cold. You, you might have cold virus replicating inside you, which, is that a bad thing? Well, look, these vectors are generally mild, but you, know, you absolutely do not want this to happen because you're giving millions of people potentially an infection, right? And that's just something you want to avoid. It could be harmful to someone. Ed, what happens when um, geopolitics impacts public health decisions? Well, we've seen again and again, haven't we, in this pandemic, that politics 
and public health go really badly together. And the more you can get the politics out of public health, the better it is. Of course, that's really hard thing to do because people see the pandemic as both an opportunity and as something that if they get wrong, that will affect them. So you can't keep politics out of public health. But the more you can, the better it is. And this is a disaster. And, and what Natasha said is completely right. And, and it's it's only one instance of it. In Slovakia, they tested various batches of the Sputnik V vaccine and found that they required different storage conditions. They were packaged differently, made differently. And that, that cast some doubt in their view on the really high efficacy rates that were found in a, in a paper that was published in The Lancet a bit before. And so it just kind of undermines your faith. Uh, and again, when they published this, there was absolutely furious reaction in Russia with the Russians accusing the, the Slovaks of fake news and of a propaganda campaign. Very ugly stuff. I think, I think the last thing I'd say here is that this is completely different from the Chinese vaccines. It really is. It's a different kettle of fish, entirely different. And so it's really important that in, in this program, we're talking about both the Chinese and Russian vaccines, but the Chinese vaccines are not like this. They're, they're kind of serious and they should be taken seriously. I think that's a really important point, Ed, because what people may not realise is that China has a big pharmaceutical industry and a big vaccine making industry. And it is very much in their self-interest to supply good quality working vaccines around the world, because if it doesn't, then these domestic industries are going to fail and they have big ambitions for them. Um, on the other hand, you have Russia, which have good vaccine-making scientists, and they're not so good at making vaccines, and they don't have a pharma industry. So, you know, they're in a completely different position. They want to make political gain in a, in a slightly different way. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's a really important point. Now, just before we go, um, Natasha, Ed, are there any stories that jumped out at you this week that you'd like to bring to our attention? Well, one of the things that I picked up on this week was actually China thinks now that it can produce 3 billion COVID vaccines this year, which obviously puts it in a great position for distributing uh, and supplying vaccines. Ed, anything you, you picked up this week? Yeah, I, I found a story on uh, Stat News, which is a great um, health news website that drew attention to a shortage of plastic pipette tips in the US. And you know, these are things that cost a few cents each. They're tiny, but you use them for absolutely everything in the lab, um, you know, and indeed, actually, for screening newborn babies for various things like their ability to digest sugars. And it so turns out that a kind of combination of factors, including increased demand because of COVID-19, but the blackout in Texas, factory fires, various regulatory actions against forced labour means that now the US has got a really bad shortage of pipette tips. And it's, it's kind of another illustration that, you know, we focus on the big things here about the supplies of, of vaccines. But for that to come together requires lots and lots of little things being right. And here's a part that cost a few cents that could slow everything up. A very powerful illustration of just how complex these supply chains are. Uh, Natasha, Ed, thank you both very much indeed. Thanks, Alok. Thanks, Alok. That's all from us. 
The show's producers are Duncan Barber and Hannah Mourinho. The sound designer is Nico Rofast and the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on The Jab next week when we'll find out just why it is that the world can't produce even more vaccines. 